The Geopolitics and Empire podcast is joined by journalist and researcher Paolo Sorbello, who uh, lived, was living in Kazakhstan. Uh, he holds a PhD from the University of Glasgow, where he studied international relations in Kazakhstan's oil sector. And he is a research fellow at Kafosari University in um, Venice. Um, how was life, uh, Paolo, in Italy, Kazakhstan, wherever you may be? Uh, hi, Roger. I'm in uh, I'm in Italy right now on, on vacation. Uh, I normally live in Almaty, uh, in Kazakhstan, um, and uh, I mean life was quite tough for the past uh, ten days, twelve days, um, just because of the um, of the events uh, in the country. Yeah, you you I mean just crazy. You go on vacation and look what happens. And uh, I guess from Italy, you're sipping on some espressos, cappuccinos, and and observing uh, events from there. Will you go be going back to Kazakhstan uh, this year? Yeah, yeah, I will be going back. Uh, that's the the place I call home. So uh, that's where I'll be going back soon. All right. So so far, uh, we've been hearing a lot of reports um, of what's going on in Kazakhstan. Uh, different narratives, different stories that Kazakhs revolted against uh, the government due to the higher energy prices, which I think is in the general you know, background context of a poor economy. Uh, and we're seeing high inflation right now uh, as well in, in many countries. Uh, and I've been following food prices because I used to live in Kazakhstan. And I've over the past two years, I've been seeing food prices for certain items jump 10% and even to 50%. Uh, some have also said that the COVID restrictions and mandates have further added fuel uh, to the fire economically. Uh, some have pointed to an internal coup, an inter-elite rivalry between Nazarbayev, Tokayev, uh, and possibly others. And last but not least, some analysts have described a foreign intervention by USA, UK, EU, uh, Turkey. You know, can you tell us to the best of your ability, uh, having lived in Kazakhstan for many years, you know, what do you think is going on in Kazakhstan? What is going on has to do a lot with um, inequality and uh, lack of representation. Um, the violence that emerged after the protests that were driven by these socioeconomic issues, uh, that has to do with something that we don't actually know. And um, I would be... Um, I think it would be difficult to pinpoint to one specific uh, answer and say this is the reason uh, and nothing else. Um, also because right now, the, for example, the official line has two competing and somehow contradictory versions. Both the um, head of the security service uh, was arrested and charged with treason. And there is a plot with 20,000 foreign trained, uh, highly trained uh, people who uh, took uh, Almaty by storm. So which one is it? Is it a coup by Masimov and, and his cronies, or is it um, uh, foreign intervention? Um, in, in the sense, it, it's also, it also shows that the narrative, even the official narrative has changed over time. And so that shows that we, as the general public, who are not behind the scenes, uh, for us, it's going to be really hard to uh, to actually know um, the details of, of the of the of the violence that happened in Almaty from the night of the night of the fourth onwards. For what concerned the protest, as you mentioned, the inflation was uh, in in the fuel prices in in Mangistau in the west of the country uh, was the prime mover, let's say. Um, but the as you also mentioned. It's been two years, two full years of uh, 
COVID uh, restrictions, and it's been two years of uh, of uh, progressively uh, decreasing standards of life, uh, inflation galloping. Um, there was a pension uh, fund uh, reform recently that uh, hit also the purchasing power of people. Uh, and in general, you know, jobs are, are getting more precarious uh, and people are essentially uh, getting increasingly fed up. And also they see all of these decisions um, to, for example, double the price of, of fuel as external. They don't have a chance to say, look, we don't like the fact that you just doubled my fuel price. So the next election, we will vote you out. That's not an option because the governors of the region are named by the president. The president is elected in very questionable elections, as we've seen by all observers uh, in the past uh, 30 years in, of independent Kazakhstan. So this is a mix of, uh, of dissatisfaction uh, in terms of socioeconomic status and also um, freedoms uh, of, of expression for people. I recall when I was in Kazakhstan, um, the, the KNB had actually politely inquired about me. And I'm like, after seeing the KNB head arrested, I'm like, why are you worrying about me, some foreigner in Kazakhstan? You should be worrying about your, your chief in charge of the KNB. But um, uh, I wanted to ask about the um, COVID restrictions just, just briefly. Like, what is it like? I've been hearing now at my former place of employment, you can't work uh, unless you're uh, vaccinated. And now they have an app uh, where it controls entry into a lot of places. And I've heard that primarily in, in Nur Sultan, uh, I don't know if they're going back to the calling it Astana or Nur Sultan and Almaty for mo many places, you need the QR code Ashuk app to enter. But I've heard outside, like in most other smaller cities, no one's um, asking for it. So, I mean, in general, what, what are the COVID restrictions like and what, what do people say about them, Kazakhs? Well, there was a uh, there were, in the origin in you know, March 2020. There was a quite long uh, lockdown. The country's borders were closed, so there was no more tourism, no more uh, you know short term business visits. Um, and only now it's it's reopening. So it's pretty much uh, 20 months of uh, of sh being shut down from from the rest of the world in order to avoid you know an influx of, of people uh, that that would be hard to control in terms of the virus. Um, so yeah, then people uh, were were given this um, this app to to enter, which restricted at some in according to the waves of, of the infection, they restricted entry into, for example, malls or stadiums or um, place or, or restaurants. Um, some, for example, in malls in the weekend, it's it's essentially harder to get in if you don't have the green status. Um, but that's not actually the, the main issue. The main issue is not the actual restrictions, but also the, um, the, the lost revenue uh, from a lot of uh, companies, which translated in the summer 2020 into 4 million people out of an, an active population of 8 million people that work. Um, 4 million people lost their jobs. That doesn't mean that they, you know, lost their jobs and they didn't find something else to do. But that means that the security they, they used to have translated into a less secure, more precarious occupation. Um, some people started uh, doing taxi driving. Some, some people started um, um, delivering food, uh, which boomed, obviously, with the, with the lockdown restrictions. So 
and and so and we we've seen it you know in in the apartments when you ordered food the people that would come would be teachers or uh people who had master's degrees uh, spoke english and or people from you know the countryside that didn't uh, speak any word of russian for example um and so in that sense um it was it was quite striking to see how everybody all of a sudden for after you know the the this this cataclysmic uh pandemic hit the the, the economy of kazakhstan uh, everybody started struggling for the crumbs that were left um in 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 the in in the normal um life of 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 the country so uh talking to some of my kazakh russian friends um out there some of them have no idea what's going on they were told uh maybe they, they live on the outskirts of the city or in smaller uh, cities or towns in kazakhstan and they were like we don't we were just told to stay home you know we're staying home we don't know what's going on uh, out there uh other friends have told me that in the plazas uh, of uh, some of the cities that there were peaceful kazakh protesters you know that they they were generally sparked by as you said the the prices and the, you know they were ha having signs and they were just peacefully protesting there so uh, in the beginning that that's what we saw right just average kazakh citizens protesting no absolutely and it was uh, the scale of it was unprecedented because the, the, we have seen several protests in certain squares um in certain cities uh, scattered every once in a while but this that spiraled from you know the small oil town of Janozen to Aktau to Atirau to Uralsk and then from the west of the country moved all across the all across the t vast territory of Kazakhstan which is one of the largest countries in the world and uh, spiraled by social media by communication and and mostly solidarity and the reason that there was solidarity was because the original protest was not just about the the price it was also about the fact that it it, it res resonated with the people because it was about inequality it was about the, the fact that people were marginalized from 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 the economic gains um for for so much for so long for such a long time and so now uh, you know moving from the the peaceful to the violent now there were reports of beheadings uh, bombings arson the looting you know, I know you said, as you said, it's hard to figure out what's going on, but how would you begin to explain where did all of this come from? Because some of that stuff does seem like that it wouldn't come from the, the domestic population. It seemed pretty extreme. So uh, can you, you know, verify some of these uh, reports and, you know, who, who do you think would be behind this? Who do I think would be behind is, a, is a, one of those million dollar uh, questions. Um, I, I, I don't want to go into a speculation and, and, and say who was or who wasn't. Um, what I what I what I know from several several uh, different accounts from several different people in Mati is that um, and, and those are people are, are eyewitnesses is that the the mass was um, huge, massive, but uh, of, of people. But in the actuality, um, it wasn't coordinated. So some of them followed the peaceful activists. And then um, once the peaceful activists were rejected by, by the special forces, um, the peaceful activists left and the more violent groups kept fighting against the police. Some of them came the, the next day on the 5th of January uh, from, from outside of the city, which should have been cordoned. 
So somebody let them in, uh, which, you know, fuels the conspiracies. Um, but again, these various groups, and then, you know, the, a, a criminal group of uh, Diki Arman, this uh, a savage Arman, uh, so-called uh, criminal boss, was there too. So people uh, with better uh, weapons were there. People with just knives and sticks were there. Um, the way that they actually uh, set on fire the, um, the municipal building and the presidential residence and the way they looted it with the videos that we saw uh, from those places, and obviously not live, but like um, broadcasted later, um, those show how unprepared the city administration was and also how uh, unprepared they were, the same looters and the same... Uh, more violent writers because they didn't know what to do. They stole weapons from the police and you see in certain instances, um, you know, this gun going off, you know, scaring the person that was carrying it because he doesn't know how to use a gun, you know? And and this kind of goes against this theory by uh, the, the leadership right now, which is, these are highly trained uh, uh, forces uh, from the Middle East and Afghanistan and other parts of Central Asia. Well, if they were highly trained, it wouldn't have lasted one day and a half, right? It would have been, and, and if, again, if there was an involvement from the special security forces that were all together, that for sure wouldn't have been just a one day and a half kind of cleanup of, of the looters. It would have been much more of a kind of a urban war. Um, and but and then the most important thing is that then... Um, the, the peaceful protesters already targeted in the first day, um, they, they then either went home or were under detention. So putting the blame on them, on them is quite uh, senseless and baseless. Um, I've spoken to some people uh, also today, and they told me we had to leave, we were detained, we were questioned, and then we, we were told, if you want to go, out again, we can let you out, but you have to leave your phone here, which means that they were not able to, you know, allegedly, you know, organize or um, or send people here or there. They were, you know, they left and they went home because they were scared because they had just been confronted by people with helmets and guns and and and, and soldiers that were essentially pushing back against them. So then to look at the power structure, then we've got, you know, we, we have the Nazarbayev who's been in power, who, who we can say, I guess, he's, he's been and still in power for 30 years. And the Nazarbayev club or, or clan, his his um, children and, and relatives and his whole group. Uh, and then you've got uh, Tokayev. And then um, I don't know if there are other elite factions. So, you know, what can you tell us what's going on now between the Nazarbayev clan and Tokayev? Some people are saying that. Tokayev was trying to clean up um, the Nazarbayev corruption. I, I think I was reading in some reports that some people were chanting, protesters were saying that we support uh, Tokayev and we want Tokayev to clean up the corruption. Um, so that some people say it was kind of like a coup of Tokayev against Nazarbayev, or maybe they're still just both working together, Nazarbayev and Tokayev. What, what can you tell us uh, about that? Well, if I had to bet... I would bet that um, both Tokayev and Nazarbayev um, are too wise to 
provoke such urban violence. So I would hope that it wasn't them, you know, giving the order uh, one way or the other, you know, uh, and, I, and I wouldn't assume so. Um, there might be, uh, you know, as you said, uh, clans close to them uh, from one side or the other who were somewhat responsible for, for e either a bit of, a violent, of the violence or some uh, power struggle around it. Um, but that's really, um, uh, that's really not possible to, to determine. What we can know is, okay, um, now we see that uh, Tokayev um, sidelined and completely uh, ostracized Masimov, who, who is now, you know, enemy number one in prison, uh, charged with, prison, with treason. Uh, so now he's done. Um, but Nazarbayev's, uh, Nazarbayev, through his own press secretary, came out uh, saying in, in support of, of Tokayev and his speeches. Um, part of the businesses uh, that were owned by Aliyah Nazarbayeva were targeted explicitly by, by uh, Tokayev in his speech of uh, January 11th. Um, but that was already out in the open. We all knew it was, it's in the press, it's everywhere, that this was a, a corrupt scheme that the law enforcement should have investigated. And so um, everyone knew. And so to, in my opinion, that's uh, kind of an easy, easy target to sell to the people saying like, look, we're, we're cleaning up, we're, you know, tackling corruption. And you, you, the first thing you tackle and who knows, maybe the last is something that we all knew already that is, is corrupt. Um, because then he named the government and the team of the government is essentially the same as before with small changes. Um, some, uh, for example, the, the Minister of Internal Affairs, who was, who was responsible for, for the police, for example, and so, you know, could, could, could have been the scapegoat in, in, in saying, okay, the police lost control of Almaty, so you should pay. Um, he's been, he is confirmed, and he was a uh, minister before, and he was minister under Nazarbayev as well. So to me, that's, that's a sign of continuity. Um, that's also a sign of continuity, the fact that um, the business, the main businesses of the Nazarbayev uh, uh, constellation of elites uh, remain uh, still untouched. Um, so in, in, in a sense, I don't see uh, this uh, kind of clear-cut conflict between uh, Tokayev, who is a product of the Nazarbayev system, and Nazarbayev. Um, sure, we haven't seen Nazarbayev out in the open. We haven't seen him uh, shake hands uh, with Tokayev. Um, but also we haven't seen him, you know, fled, fleeing the country and condemning uh, Tokayev for this uh, power move. Um, that's the other thing. If it were a coup, it would have been um, claimed by some somebody. If it were an Islamist coup or an Islamist attack or a terrorist attack, there would have been a terrorist organization taking charge of it. We've seen it all the time across the world, and we haven't seen it in, in, in Kazakhstan. Why? Uh, so that's why <laughs> we are lacking answers. Yeah, so there have been reports that you know the Nazarbayev club had uh, fled uh, Kazakhstan, um, and that you think so. You don't think that Nazarbayev 
the team is going to lose power. So you, you think it's just the same as continuing where it's the Nazarbayev and the Tokayev together. I mean, just essentially no, nothing has really changed, do you think? Well, well it, it probably won't win from this, absolutely. But um, we, as, as long as the billions are not targeted, but the millions, but, but we're talking about millions, um, then I don't see a change. I, I, I function, <laughs> I, my analysis functions through uh, a lens that is also economic. And so if, if the main business interests are not touched, then um, I don't see that big of a change. Obviously, um, the power uh, ministries and, and all these uh, uh, personnel moves helped Kyiv gain uh, power. Uh, now there's a new head of the KNB, the, the security service, which obviously uh, is now more loyal to to Tokayev. Uh, there are more ministers that are essentially his product, but uh, we also see old-fashioned uh, Nazarbayev-era uh, ministers uh, keeping their, their, their post. Well, what would you make of um, what the Chinese and Russians, I don't know who else has uh, repeated this, but uh, Putin, I think, came out and declared that this was a color revolution or foreign sponsored regime change as you mentioned tokayev said it was a coup but he didn't really give any like specifics and then he later kind of changed the story and the chinese uh, basically the chinese have also said what uh, the russians said that it was a color revolution uh, do you have any comment on on their on their comments well yeah if it, if that was a press conference uh, my follow up question to putin and to the minister uh, in china would be which color is it? Um, who, who is behind it? All the color revolutions that we've seen have a leader, whether that's like the next authoritarian leader or it's a democratic leader or is a populist, um, whichever has a leader, a movement, a recognizable, um, maybe non institutionalized, but a recognizable and organized group of people. We haven't seen that. We haven't seen that kind of. Uh, response and it's also obviously very convenient to frame it that way in order to justify the deployment of of troops or foreign troops the the fact that the repression was so uh, harsh uh, Tokayev couldn't have said you know I'm 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 shooting uh, I ordered uh, the, the the army to shoot at people without warning uh, if if the sovereignty of the country wasn't at stake right. Um, and it couldn't have, that could not have been justified, even though, you know, we know that the government of Kazakhstan has in the past ordered the, um, the police and the special forces to, sh to, to open fire against unarmed um, uh, uh, protesters. Do you think uh, Kazakhstan will um, go back to the stability that it has enjoyed for the past decade or, or two? Uh, or do you think... Um, it's going to be a bit unstable from here on out and, you know, with the potential for things to fall apart again, like it did, you know, what uh, does the near future hold for Kazakhstan? Well, I hope um, in general that uh, stability will, will be uh, in place. Um, that's for, because uh, that's out, something that is out of control from the people. So it's not up to the people to, to maintain stability in a country so 
vertically oriented and so controlled from the top uh, as Kazakhstan. Um, but at the same time, uh, I'm, I'm fearing, like many others, that uh, freedoms will be uh, targeted and uh, restricted further, uh, which, is, which is a statement that uh, has a lot of weight because already uh, in Kazakhstan before uh, this January, freedoms and, and uh, the possibility of people to express themselves and to, and to uh, voice their dissent was very, was very little. Um, so, so now the space will be even, even smaller and, and many journalists are already being targeted as we speak, uh, especially in the region, like, like you mentioned, in the, in the small squares of the peripheral regions, um, uh, peripheral cities, uh, where the peaceful protests happen on the 3rd and the 4th of, um, of January. A lot of the journalists right now are being questioned by, by the police. A lot of journalists are, be, are being, have been arrested for having violated um, the curfew or the law on, um, on peaceful assembly. So this, this is the fear from many human rights activists and many activists as well. Yeah, tell me about it. When I was there, my email is blocked in Kazakhstan, my, the email that I use. And I had to go through like three VPNs that the I guess the government kept you know, blocking the VPN services. Um, do you think uh, Kazakhstan up until now has had a multi-vector approach in everything, you know, foreign policy and, you know, balancing between China, Russia, the EU, United States, uh, after the what, what occurred with the CSTO and, you know, Tokayev calling up uh, Putin for assistance. Do you think the multi-vector approach will continue or do you think Kazakhstan has now moved closer to Russia? I mean, you were in Timei. You know that, you know, in the north of Kazakhstan, there's, uh, there's quite a lot of influence from, uh, from, from Russia. Um, but also we know that Nazarbayev was a very good friend, uh, you know, politically uh, with, um, with Putin. Tokayev is from the same kind of environment also, uh, very close. Uh, Russia has always had a lot of influence on Kazakhstan. Um, and, uh, and so I don't think that will necessarily change after the deployment of the troops, because also the troops are already leaving uh, as we speak. Um, and, but at the same time, it was the most logical first call. Uh, when you are in trouble, you have to call your best friend to help you. So you don't call China, which is a new friend, you don't call the EU or the EU state member states or the US because they're far away, only interested in business. Um, so you call Russia, which has a military that is ready to be deployed. And probably you had a previous phone call before the official call saying, will you come if I call, if I call you? Um, and, so, and so that, that was kind of like the, the, the stamp of approval from, from Putin. Um, which now has, uh, let's say, an open check with Tokayev, uh, but I don't believe that he will ever cash it because um, I don't think it's it, it it serves any purpose for 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 Russia to um, to get back what they what they gave because now they they can always say, well, Tokayev, you're there for us, so you know, keep thanking us. Don't, you know, go out of line. Um, and that, that's pretty much it. There's not going to be a, a concession of land or 
you know, a concession of sovereignty in terms of the army. There's not going to be a battalion deployed uh, constantly in Kazakhstan. Um, I don't think that's going to be uh, a case. There might be, you know, small deals that in which, I don't know, Russian businessmen are uh, preferred uh, to other businessmen. But uh, I don't believe that the, the general geopolitical picture changed. And Kazakhstan obviously will continue to be multivectoral because that's the only option they've always had. Um, uh, besides, you know, going the, the neutral Turkmenistan way, which is like very close to the outside world and only allows um, the few selected uh, people in. So in this sense, uh, China was very happy that um, Russia and uh, the CSTO uh, member states uh, also intervened. Um, because that meant that the security issue that was emerging in Kazakhstan was dealt with by other people. And so they, uh, they enjoyed the return into stability without uh, spending a penny. Uh, and the same can be said of uh, European states and United States. Uh, they all uh, watched from afar, very worried, as they always are when there's a conflict. Um, uh, they were quite happy uh, behind the scenes, I think, when, uh, uh, you know, the, the situation now is back to normal. People are walking the streets. Um, businesses are reopening, cleaning up the, the mess from the riots. Uh, and, uh, and life can start again as, as, as usual. I've heard some fantastical statements um, saying that you know saying talking about the possibility of you know where the larger russian population is situated in the north that you know that it would break apart from kazakhstan and reintegrate with russia these kinds of things and i just don't see that at all in the realm of possibility because i mean from living there it seems like not even the russians there would be interested in that like they have a hard enough time just trying to make ends meet economically uh, as you're saying i think most people's occupation preoccupation is just living life and, and dealing with the economic aspect no yeah absolutely absolutely and also if they wanted to they could just go to russia uh, you know like it's uh, it's not it's not it, i don't think that in that sense they feel such a extremely different uh, loyalty and affiliation and national identity it's it's the 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 in a way that it's it's beautiful to to go deep and 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 analyze and, and discover the the multi-layered national identity in in this part of the of the world because so many uh, different elements uh, happened um but that's not that not the, not to orientalize them it's the same for me you know i'm from sicily and uh, sicily was conquered by spanish the arabs uh the french uh so so in that sense we also have layer everyone in the world has a quite layered uh national identity and this was this is um a testimony of the fact that it's not just clear cut you know you know after you pass the border between kazakhstan and russia you switch off some something in your brain and something uh, changes um the history of of, of central asia and of kazakhstan uh, and russia in particular um has uh, so many layers that uh, I don't think that, you know, uh, with a blink of an eye, you can just change uh, borders and also affiliations and also the people sentiment. So um, I don't think, again, like you said, that this is in the realm of possibilities and that is convenient to anybody also, like who, who benefits from that. 
Yeah, that's fascinating. With the conversations I had, I had Tatar friends and ethnic Kazakh friends and, and ethnic Russian friends and others. And I mean, for me, it's easy to identify. I identify most as, as a Croatian because I'm ethnically a Croat. And so I had friends there in Kazakhstan, let's say, who's Tatar. And I'm like, so are, are you Kazakh or Tatar? I'm like, well, I'm Kazakh because I grew up, you know, I'm, I identify as a Kazakh citizen, you know, or or Russians in that sense, you know, ethnic Russians who they would still say, well, I'm they feel because they were born in Kazakhstan, they're, they're kind of Kazakh citizens and they've never been to Russia. It's, it's just, I mean, it's all fascinating. Do you have, um, is there any other issue you wanted to bring up or any final thought uh, for us, something else to mention regarding uh, everything that's happened? Well, the, the only thing is that uh, I wish that, um, that the wider world would uh, care more about Central Asia um, because that way we wouldn't be so surprised um, every time something happens there. Um, I, I, I happen to live there and I happen to report from there and I happen to study uh, the region. But um, w what we saw, for example, in the media coverage of, of this um, uh, emergency and this chaos uh, was pretty stunningly bad. And, um, and so I... If, if I can appeal, uh, I think we need more eyes on, on Central Asia. We need more um, journalists there. We need, we need more, uh, a better presence of, uh, of international organizations and uh, international monitors uh, for human rights, for example, because in that sense, um, this will also benefit Kazakhstan itself um, to, to have a better, to, for the world to have a better understanding uh, of Kazakhstan. It's it's uh, it's beauties and it's problems that can always be solved because problems are there because uh, we recognize them as problems because we know that they can be solved. And talking about all of Asia, for me, I fell in love with Central Asia, which is why I, I I went to go. I lived in Mongolia and I've lived in Kazakhstan, and for me, I don't know. There's just something special about. Central Asia uh, and all of that, the traditions, culture, and history there. So um, where are the best places for people to find your work? I uh, work for Global Voices, uh, Open Democracy, The Diplomat. Uh, that's, you know, the ones that I contribute to most frequently. Um, and, um, and yeah, uh, that's uh, most of my work is there. All right. Um, and people can also follow you uh, on Twitter and LinkedIn. I'll include the links in the description. And you know, what can I say? Uh, when, when you get back to Kazakhstan, uh, continue enjoying the, the Bishparmak. Uh, be safe out there. And, you know, grazie for being on Geopolitics and Empire. Rahmet. <laughs> Ciao. I hope you enjoyed this Geopolitics and Empire podcast interview. The website is geopoliticsandempire.com, and I encourage you to sign up for the free email list through which you can receive an update of every new podcast, as well as a long list of key news headlines once a week. We're being heavily censored. YouTube has deleted some of our videos, and we currently have one strike. Patreon has terminated our account. Facebook has restricted our page, and Reddit has been the leading posts. Our favorite social media channels are Telegram and Twitter. The best places to watch the podcast beyond YouTube are on Odyssey, BitChute, and Brighteon. The best places to listen to the podcast are on SoundCloud, Apple, Spotify, Google, or on any other podcast app. To help keep this podcast alive, leave a review on Apple Podcasts and wherever else, subscribe to all our platforms, and leave a donation if possible via Subscribestar, PayPal, Bitcoin, or Ethereum. 
You can also find us on MeWe, Minds, Gab, Float, VK, LinkedIn, and Instagram. Thanks for listening.